Do you want to relax? Are you having trouble sleeping or focusing? CBD reduces anxiety, chronic pain, seizures, PTSD, depression. Try our CBD gummies or chocolates. You will be very satisfied. Visit cbdcollections.net 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 Hello folks, Chris Daly here. It's always great to have great conversation with Jamaicans doing wonderful thing wherever they are in the world. <clears throat> and do we have a great guest for you today. We have none other than Myrna Lloyd. Myrna is celebrating um, Black History Month in the UK today. But in, apart from that, um, she has had a very interesting life. We've had her on before. And um, when you are repeat guests on this show, you are very special. <laughs> so Bernard, she was born in London of Jamaican parents. She manages, she's the managing director of the Bright, Black Bright News, which was developed for awareness within, around negative um, stereotypes within our community. She's not only the managing director, she also has many community outreach programs particularly focus on folks who have been abused, who have been robbed of trust and power. This multi-talented woman is also a qualified counselor and she does lots of counseling to her program, Talking Blues Relationship Forum. We'll renew our conversation Monday this morning around some very relevant topics. Welcome to our conversation, Myrna. Welcome, Chris. Lovely to meet you and see you over this platform. Great, great, great. For those folks who, especially here, the, or folks in the U.S. who may not have heard your story, um, you had a very challenging childhood. Give us, in, in summary, what made it so challenging for you. Give us a wind into your life story. Well, I think... Um, when we as adults and look back on a challenging childhood sometimes we do not know the reason why we behave the way we do or what the way i did in my particular case uh, my mother came over to the uk pregnant and so she had to um, put me in a foster home in order to work in order to make a living so I was placed in a foster home for the formative time, like for the formative years. So I, I guess when I say it was a challenging childhood, it was because at one minute I was with a loving mother and the next minute I was with two, an Anglo-Indian lady and a white lady whose role was to look after children. It wasn't to show them love. It was just to show them discipline. And it was just very, a very, very cold environment. And out of that, my mum took me back when I was about 10, 10 years old. And so 
I, when I went back to my mum and my mum started asking me to do things, I became very rebellious. I think I was resentful, even though I, I mean, looking back at it now as an informed adult, I can understand why I was rebellious because I didn't feel as though my mother who had sent me away should tell me what to do. So that led to a lot of uh, mis misjudgment. Um, it led to poor decisions. I ended up being pregnant at 16. My mum took my child. And so I ended up running off and getting married. And so it was a kind of a really um, challenging because I was young, I was rebellious, and I was um, somebody who didn't listen to instructions. So that was my challenging upbringing. Wow. Boy, you're a person of adventure for sure. <laughs> and given the circumstances you did. So, the, the other thing that came to here that uh, folks who know you, you did not take the victim in theology role. No, I definitely you're didn't. Stars into stars. What gave yeah. you the, the motivation to actually choose that kind of path in life? I think my mother played a pivotal role because my mother was always telling me I'll never amount to anything. You know, nobody's going to want me. And she, you know, my head is picky and my head is small. And she was constantly a critic. And so I, I found myself trying to prove her wrong. And so in her head, in her mind, on reflection and after talking to her, she was a bit resentful that I was, I, you know, I, well, she kind of blamed it onto me that I kind of was responsible for her making her choices and not doing well and having to settle and things like that. So I took it on board to try to make her proud of me. So regardless of what she said to me, I was determined to do the opposite. So if she told me not to marry a Jamaican, I would marry two Jamaicans. If she told me, <laughs> you know what I mean? If she told me not to go here, I'd go. So I, so when she told me I wouldn't amount to anything, I would make sure I did. If she told me my hair was picky, okay, I wear wigs. But you know what? I used to rebel against everything she told me. And I think that was my motivation. I mean, a lot of people will take that criticism as negative and it could actually put them down and make them feel less than. But for me, it had the opposite effect. I was constantly trying to prove myself. And I think maybe subconsciously, that's why I do so much today. Wow, this is incredible. Yeah, well, you, on, along the way, part of it, I think, why you did so well, you discovered you had all of these skills. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you had the skills of expression and communication. Yeah, and, this, and you used that as a means of healing. Yes. Now tell us a little about your writing, how you use that as a healing pad, and about your journalistic skills. Well, it's interesting with the writing part because, as, as I've said, I had a baby at 16. So my mother was a very proud woman, and so she didn't want anybody to know her daughter was pregnant. So she kind of put me in a separate part of the house. And so what I would do, she gave me a laptop. Well, not a laptop. It was like a little... Um, typewriter and she told me to practice to become a secretary and what I used to do is I just used to write and as I wrote my thoughts rhymed 
every time I wrote a sentence, it would just rhyme. And so I, I used to write how I was feeling, you know, and every kind of emotion I felt, that was the way I got through it. So poetry became my therapy, even though I didn't know it back then, because whereas I could, there was no one to talk to for me, I was able to talk through my writing and, and kind of talk to God because that was the only person who, even though he was invisible, I considered could hear me. And so that's how my writing, and then as I got older, it turned into painting. Painting was very therapeutic. And then with my writing my books, it's just about telling my story. And, you know, so other people, even though you're beaten up and even though you feel down and even though the world is against you and even though people say bad things about you, you don't have to let it get to you. I mean, it's easy to say, it's easier said than done, but it is about mindset. And I was fortunate enough to have a strong mindset and a determined mindset, which made me, you know, more or less what would have happened to a lot of other people who might have come homeless, gone on drugs, did this, do that. That didn't happen to me. And I ended up, you know, actually um, getting a good job, um, doing lots of things that was very productive and very positive. Incredible. That's great. Recently, I guess, as you know, we live in a world of change. And now the way we communicate and connect with people of change with new media, and you've adapted. Tell us a little about um, how you've adapted to, um, to still remain connected with folks and to actually even expand your audience. Well, I think I, I didn't have a voice when I was young and I used to, I never used to like the way I looked. And so what I found with YouTube, which was fascinating, is that I, I, I would, it helped me to accept myself because I'd have to look at myself in order to send a message to help other people. Because my, my role on YouTube was, especially when they were deporting um, the Windrushians in the UK, and I realized that a lot of them were illiterate and they didn't know, uh, they didn't know legislation, they didn't know that the laws had changed. And I thought to myself, I've got to help them. And so I started doing my videos because of that, and because I did it, because I did it for someone else, I ended up looking at myself and using that as a platform and getting confident in accepting myself for who I am, accepting myself for the way I look. Then you know, and it also meant that because I've got, I think I've got about over ten thousand subscribers who are mm. quite consistent on YouTube. It meant that people were interested in what I had to say. So that built my confidence. So now if I, if I find a subject that I think will help somebody, I can now do it with confidence. I don't have to, I don't think about how I look. Well, I shouldn't say I don't think about how I look. I'm not going to look like any and anything, but, but I'm less, I'm less critical, I should say. Got it. Yeah. Well, so. You're known for this poem, the special poem. Thus, the title alone says, Volume. Time does not heal. And it yes. kind of describes your mom's windrush experience. Yes. Tell us a little about that poem in particular. And if you'd like to share a little piece of it, please do. Okay, I will. It's called Time 
doesn't heal the pain, does it, Mama? And that is because my my mother and I, we had a kind of symbiotic relationship. It was, it, I loved her to death, but she found it difficult to show love. I'm not saying she didn't give me love, but she found it difficult to demonstrate love. And I think, you know, my father, he betrayed her. And I think I look so much like my father. I think that was the reason why she found it difficult every time she saw me to forget about that experience, which which she she felt destroyed her life. So that's why I wrote this poem. And I'm going to read it to you now. Oh, mama, you poor creature. You came to a country where you knew not your future. Your corpulent belly protected me from harm temporarily. My father asked you to stay, but you turned him away. Your pride could not deal with the hurt you'd concealed. So you left your home without a word to anyone. Your pain and affliction became an addiction, causing you to choose a route with such predilection. When you recall him, Mama, you are filled with such hate. How could such an encounter determine your fate? You decided to sail from one place to another, leaving behind your mother and father, only to discover that cold winds and expressions would serve to teach you a different kind of lesson. What could I do? I was a parasitical amoeba designed to feed off of you. Mama, how did it feel to leave my papa, your papa, your mama? Were there millions of tears when compelled to leave relationships developed throughout the years? How did it feel to leave palm trees and blue skies for a country of prejudice and a country of lies? How did it feel after making your plans to, con to discover you had conceived for a married man? Was it his fair face or his warm embrace that enchanted you towards that secret place? Or was it his style that deceived you by guile or his charismatic attest that made you accept? Do you despise him, Mama? because of that pain. You never ever mention his name. Do you resent me, Mama, because I look like him? The bout of time is long in breaking. It was so long ago, and yet you're still so cold. You still cannot forgive him so that we can start living. Wow, incredible. What kind of responses you're getting from folks when they hear you share with such deep conviction and empathy well that was that was why i beat myself up at the um the awards because that was the poem i wanted to recite and because of the format i didn't get a chance to so actually no one's heard that poem apart from what i did on the youtube and what and now incredible we're certainly certainly honored and privileged to hear you because I can see the emotions in you as you actually express that. Mm. You've written other books of poems. Is, yes. How would this, or in other genres, I assume also? This, yeah, this I kind of mix, I'm kind of mix the patois with the English and the, and the um, slang that we have over here. So, yes, I, I've done poems like that. Okay. <laughs> what, a British accent with... Yeah, it's like, <laughs> this weather I got bring me down. 
<laughs> In addition to be a writer um, and a journalist, you're also a businesswoman, and you've recently started uh, a tea business. A tea yes. business is in our place than England. <laughs> yes, yes exactly. about the yeah, the teas that start and where you get your products from, and and, and what what's the um, the motivation to do this? Well, it's a herbal tea kitchen, so. Oh. I started to, I started with buying um, boxes of teas like, you know, Dalgetty teas and the regular box teas. And then I found that, you know, the other traders, they were all selling their boxes of tea. So I decided that um, I had a friend who had herbs in the garden. And so we decided to pick some of the herbs like fennel, lemongrass. I researched the properties in each herb and I started making teas from the herbs in the garden and then they were popular and so then I started researching and I'm actually going to start a herbologist course but then I started researching the different kinds of herbs and now I make custom teas so if somebody comes in and says they've got a headache or they've got like the other day somebody came in they said they she had parasites or whatever <laughs> what I tend to do is I'll research the um I'll research the herbs and see which one complements each other and make sure there's no side effects and things like that and they're not pregnant and that kind of stuff. And I, I kind of make custom teas and do sorrel and Irish moss and stuff like that. So it's it's a quite right, it's a variety of different um, teas or beverages that I concoct. This and it's really to help. It's just really to help heal because people coming out of COVID, a lot of them are so depressed and they really want to have something healthy. And I'm not saying that, you know, my herbs heal, but research, you know, through research, they do say certain herbs heal certain parts of the body or they're meant to heal certain parts of the body. So it just makes people feel better. And that's that's my role. I just want people to feel better, whether it's through counselling, whether it's through my teas, whether it's through my magazine. You know, it's kind of like a healing journey for people because I didn't really get that nurturance. So I like to give that nurturance to people who cross my path when and when I can. Wonderful. Thank you for that kind of big heartedness that you have, Myrna. Can can folks overseas also buy? Do you do you support a global marketplace? What, oh no, 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 no. If you don't live in Luton. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I do is I've got no intention of branching out. I'm keeping it small, I'm keeping it personal. Um, I think the personal touch is what's needed these days. And so I've got no intention of branching out. You know, I, I, it's what I can manage to do with my time. And that's how I'm doing it at the moment. Well, that's how I plan to do it. I don't plan to branch out and go global and have a website. You know, <laughs> okay. if you live in, you know, if you can make your way to Luton, then good. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, when folks, if you're visiting Luton, you may make sure that it's on your stuff. One of yeah. I know one of your 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 deep convicting passions is around the Windrush stuff. Although it's oh, not yes. very prevalent in news as opposed to I hear they're they're making a statue towards it. Um 
people's lives are still being affected. It's a tragedy. It Could is a tragedy. Bring it, yeah, bring us up to speed as the current status of the situation there. Well, it hasn't really changed. I mean, they've still got um, task forces um, trying to see how many people can get compensation. Um, we've still got people being deported. And it's just a mess, really, because the Windrush um, generation, they've been trapped by legislation. And that's the only way I can put it, because mm. when they came over, they came over as Commonwealth citizens, believing that they had a right to be in the UK, have a right to live in the UK. And they brought their children, because the children are the ones who are suffering now. They brought their children with them, um, believing that their children would have a right in the UK. But what the UK has done, they've amended legislation so that if, if the, um, I think it's the if the if the if the parents aren't born in the UK, if the grandparents aren't born in the UK, technically you could be deported if you've done something wrong. Now, so technically, because my parents were born in Jamaica, even though I've been here 69 years, they could boot me out. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If I committed a crime, because remember the Shemaima Begum, she was born in this country but they deported her to the country of her parents, even though that country wasn't even a country that could take the, um, the child. I think Jamaica is a bit different. I think Jamaica will take the children of Jamaican parents, but that is the situation now. So they, um, the, the hostile environment policy is still in place, you know, banks, um, employers, um, landlords, all ganging up to make sure that you have to, they, you show them your immigration status. For those people who came through the Commonwealth and didn't have the paperwork, didn't have to prove their status, they wouldn't have had any documentation if they didn't travel. So therefore, these people have either got kicked out of their homes and can't get a job, and it's it's devastating. So many have died. So many are sick. So many, you know, just are at their wit's end. They don't know whether they're coming or going. And they put all their life into the UK. And the thing is, the government could easily track whether or not they were legitimately in the country right. through their NHS, you know, through their GP records, through their tax records, their employee reference. So... They've made it deliberately difficult for the Windrushians to find the, the evidence. Thank God they've got a task force, but a lot of the Windrushians are afraid to put themselves forward just in case they're detained or deported. So a lot of them, I think, I, th I forget the number. I did write it down, but there's a small number. They was expecting, I think, 540,000 to apply. Wow. But only 12,000 received compensation. I was wondering, given that there are other um, groups that migrated to the UK at this time, mm. do they, is there a collaboration? Or is this legislation clearly aimed just at the Windrush folks? Uh, well, they call it the Windrush, but Asians, Asians, are, are, Asians are included. Are included, so it's okay. So it's in a collab or in a collaboration between the different groups 
inappropriate. Yes, it's everybody who came to the UK within that period. I think why we call it Windrush is because the black people or the Caribbean are focusing on their Caribbean group. So uh, Asians might well have their own, but I'm not aware of it. Okay. I was wondering, is there anything the folks outside of the UK within the diaspora can do to support or to keep the story alive and, and, and add pressure to the legislation and, and for the, those to reconsider? Well, I'm not sure. I think it's, you know, I hate to say this, but it does seem as though Jamaica is sleeping with the enemy because I think if they questioned um, those people who were deported to see whether or not they're legitimately, you know, they did, you know, they're eligible for deportation because a lot of them aren't. You know, technically, you're supposed to um, originally, if you spent more than four years in jail, that was automatic deportation. They've now dwindled that down to twelve months, and mm. they're dwindling it down even further to six months. So anybody could stop. You know, the police could stop somebody with a spliff and say, look, we're going to throw you in jail for 12 months just to qualify for them to be deported. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So with um, when it was four years, it had to be something really serious like murder, rape, you know, something really, really serious. But now people are being deported for minor things. I think last time there was a guy with a driving offence huh. and they included him in in that lot that was being deported. I don't know whether or not his appeal went through because if they don't have the money to get a lawyer to appeal against it, you know, they get shipped off. And I mean, the last one I think was a couple of months ago mm. and I should have had my figures, but less than half didn't get deported. They were meant to be deported, but they had legal counsel and they weren't deported. So they're deporting people who don't have um, the help and the support, mm. you see. Or, you know, maybe they've done something wrong and they haven't got the lawyers to support them. I don't know the, I don't know the semantics about it all. Well, but it's a bit fishy. Yeah, hopefully somebody gets a country, even at the other end, and show the, the, the travesty. of. I thought I saw one... Um, documentary that looked at folks who got deported back in Jamaica and followed their lives for a while mm. and um, how devastating it was. Oh, it was devastating. Yeah, it's horrible. And can you imagine a lot of them, they've been in the UK since they're young and what do they yeah. know about the Jamaican lifestyle? And then Jamaican lifestyle is like a hustling lifestyle. You have to exactly. know how to work and do your thing. You can't be timid. And the thing is with the British culture, it's quite weak. It doesn't it doesn't grow men. You know what mm. I mean? Yeah. It's not designed. Whereas if you think about Africa, you see the little young boys, they're they're picking up wood and they're doing all kinds of stuff from a very young age. They they grow men, but British Britain doesn't do that. So for people, for the young men to leave um, England and go to Jamaica and they're they're practically still boys mentally. Right. You know, it's very difficult for them to survive in that climate. Wow. I want to move on up to the, it's also Black History Month in the UK. 
Mm. Um, what, what would you say the state economically and politically of, of Blacks are within the current climate in the UK? And what is there to celebrate? Well, what is there to celebrate? I mean, on the one hand, we've got a lot of funding. You know, organizations get funding for Black History Month, so they can celebrate it in every which way. I think last um, last week was a prime example. We had the Windrust um, Celebration Awards, and that was celebrating through Black History Month, which is in October. So there'll be a lot of events going on and you know, most of them are funded. I happen to have paintings in the Wardown Museum. I'm the first Windrush painter um, to ever have their paint, to ever have their artwork in that museum. It's a very kind of an old, you know, pristine, you know, uh, what they call that word, but it's very traditional. So to see some black paintings in there, it's quite strange. But yeah, so there's different things that are going on. And as far as economics, we still got Black Pound Day that, you know, which, well, the black people are trying to um, put it in place. But last year, the police were raiding all the, all the little black businesses in the market on Black Pound Day, saying that they were looking for weed and this and that. So it was disrupting, it was disrupting the, um, the service. So whereas people were meant to be making a little bit more money on that day, you know, that didn't happen. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're there and, and being such a model of, you know, I said, um, not just a fighting, of staying stable, of getting up and keep moving. And I thank you, Myrna, for that kind of spirit that you, what folks are down, they have you as a great model to look for, to say, gee, we can take a lick, but we can keep on clicking. Uh, what can we expect <laughs> next from you? Well, I think specialism. You know, I've got, I'm doing so many different things and I want to specialize now. Um, find a way to amalgamate all my skills and my talents into one direction. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm thinking about doing a herbalist course. And I can use my creativity and creating different kinds of teas and I can use all my different um, skills in that direction. So I'm not going to say that it is going to be um, the TIHTK, but it will be some, I, I do intend to specialise now. I'm not, I don't intend to take on anything new, but I intend to kind of hone in what I'm doing. So if I'm doing the YouTube, I'll be honing in on particular subjects instead of going all over the place. And I just want to try and galvanize, galvanize all my information. And so it's a bit more, um, I don't even know what the word is, but I think you understand what I mean. It's a harvesting of your, all of that thing and giving it some very focused direction. Yes, exactly. Like yeah, that's it. You've said it perfectly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> As we close today for this delightful conversation, Myrna, any parting wisdom you have for audience? I just wanted to say, let criticism let criticism grow you, not thought, not thwart you. In other words, you know, we're so we're so sensitive. We we've become such a fragile race, and we we're kind of very fearful. A lot of us are very fearful. And all I'm saying is that 
you know, when somebody criticizes you, don't take it personally. It's usually coming from their energy. It's got nothing to do with you, but just use it, you know, take from it what you can and just use it to build yourself. That's all I would say. Wow, that's wisdom, eternal wisdom. Thank you so much, Myrna, for spending some time with us. Continued success and growth to you. Okay, then thank you. To talking to you soon again. Okay, then take care now. Thank you.